Hello, and welcome to Black Men Speak, a podcast designed to address the concern of black men and provide a forum for them to learn, feel empowered, and be the men they are called to be. Have you ever read this from a black man when it comes to his views on marriage and relationships? I'm not ready to get married because there are just too many women out there. Or I'm just not in a position to get married. I've got to get my money straight. When we talk about love and marriage from a black male perspective, and we paint this picture that black men are not viable marriage material due to no money to take care of a family, or just no committed a lifestyle of many sexual conquests. But that's not necessarily the case. Like our black women, we want the same things as they do when it comes to marriage and relationships like partnership and commitment, and how marriage is important for family and community. And to prove that, my guest today has a book titled Black Love Matters, Authentic Men's Voices on Marriage and Romantic Relationships. His name is Dr. Armin Perry. Dr. Perry spent the last four years conducting a study on a more diverse group of black men to learn more about their perspective on marriage. Their stories revealed, which are typically not explored in research on black men. They opened up about their desire for intimacy and companionship in their relationships, contrary to the popular image that our society holds of black men. Dr. Perry is a professor of the University of Louisville's Kent School of Social Work. His research interests are fathers' involvement in the lives of their children and African-American men's contributions to family functioning. And with that note, let's start the show. Dr. Perry, how how you doing, sir? I'm good. Keith, how about you? I, I'm doing I'm doing great. I'm just glad that you're here today. Um, you know, to kind of really just giving us an opportunity to talk about a topic that men in general don't normally talk about, at least in uh, in public. So, you know, you wrote this you know this great book, Black Love Matters: uh, Authentic Men's Voices on Marriage and Romantic Relationships. So, what what made you decide to write the book? Well, first of all, Keith, thank you for having me and thank you for sharing your platform with me. Um, I think these are really, really important topics. And and even though I'm a university professor, I believe it's really important for us to take these conversations beyond the walls of the university uh, because of the way in which they have implications for what's happening in the community. So, again, I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to come on and share with all your listeners and all your subscribers. In terms of inspiration for the book, there were a number of things. Um, most of my research revolves around fathers and their involvement with their children. And, and so one of the things that we know in the fatherhood space is that the very pathway for dads taking active roles in their children's lives is through their relationships with their children's mother. And so what that means is dads who are either married or co-reside or live in the same house with their children are in a much more advantageous position to be able to take an active role in their kids' lives. And so for that reason, even though most of my work revolves around fatherhood, I started to take more of an interest in the men's relationships, uh, particularly with their children's mothers. And what we found and what the research bears out is that when guys have a positive relationship with their kids' mothers, they tend to be more actively involved. And obviously, if you uh, get to a point where your relationship is one where you either co-reside or you're married, 
that sort of places you at sort of the pinnacle of having a positive and, and respectful relationship with one's children's mother. So anyway, so that was one reason. Uh, beyond the fatherhood sort of connection, just following pop culture, there seems to be a preoccupation with finding and keeping a good black man. There's all of these dating shows and there's all of these sort of reality shows. And a lot of this stuff revolves around how it is people can either, number one, identify a good black man, two, secure a good black man, and then three, how is it that you keep a good black man if you're able to accomplish steps one and step two? So those have been things that have uh, been on my mind for a number of years, and a lot of it really started to crystallize a few years back when uh, Steve Harvey wrote a, a relationship book that people seem to be uh, really, really drawn to. And when I read the book, I received it a little bit differently than I think most people did, at least most of the people in my circle anyway. Mm. And I think in a lot of ways, it was probably a function of what I do for a living. And so when I picked it up, what I was looking for was uh, something that had sort of a, a data analysis, sort of a foundation, something with some empirical mm. research behind it that I could support and, and in terms of being able to uh, feel pretty good about whatever conclusions that were drawn. Uh, except what I found was that it read more like sort of just the world according to Steve Harvey. Um, and I don't mean that disrespectfully because right, right. Steve Harvey is as welcome to his opinion as anyone else. The issue for me was it appeared as though at least the people in my circle, they weren't receiving it as if it were the world according to Steve Harvey. They were re receiving it as if it were something that was based and grounded in some sort of data analysis or some sort of empirical research. Uh, so they were receiving it much more broad base and i think it was either intended or at least the way that i read it so um for all of those reasons i said well i, I think there's some balance that needs to come to this discussion both in an academic literature sort of a space but also in a pop culture space as well and so in a way so we we set out to to conduct a study and, and so that's how it came about so you're saying in steve harvey's book it was more and it probably based on you know his his show and the stuff that he heard a day to day and then he was able to formalize it into a book yeah and in so some in his personal circumstances which again unless most people in their lived experiences are a lot different than what i'm assuming again steve harvey is a is a celebrity and has much more in terms of uh status and access to resources and income and wealth than the average joe and jane public so the way that he goes into his relationships is going to be just a lot different than than the people listening into your your podcast and the people that are in my circle of influence. You know what That's, I mean? Right. And I so see, yeah. And so he goes on. He talks about these sort of rules for relationships. But the truth of the matter is, those things may or may not be applicable to people who have just different lifestyles and people with different sets of experiences. The other thing is, I don't know that there's any hard or fast rule to any relationship because necessarily a relationship has to be tailored to fit the needs and the personalities of the two people involved, right? right? The there can be rules that can be applied across the board, I think is a bit of a leap. To and that's interesting, leap. yeah, because I've always said, and when I have worked with couples, you can have different personalities, but it's, if you know and understand your partner's personality and you can communicate with them, then the relationship can work. It doesn't, you know, not Zodiac sign or, you know, where you, right. and you hear a lot of those things today is like, oh, well, he, the moon of cancer or whatever is not aligned. Yeah. So therefore it's not going to work. But, I, you know, I don't see it that same way. So, you know, so you had to do the research for the book. So what kind of surprised you 
uh, as you were interviewing uh, these men about your book? I think the biggest surprise for me was just how open, just how um, receptive, just how willing the guys were to sit down with me, a complete stranger, and talk to me about the deepest and most intimate parts of their lives. Um, going into it, I would have been—I would have never expected men to, to to be willing to do that. I expected to have to use all of my training as a social worker to try to connect with guys and engage them and sort of bring them out of their shells and pull teeth or whatever the case may be, whatever analogy or cliche you want to use for fighting an uphill battle to try to pull out of them whatever was was inside them. But uh, again, to my surprise, that wasn't the case at all. There were there were several times when. Uh, after talking with guys for multiple hours, we left the interview only to have to sort of reschedule just to finish it up. Right. So, wow. OK, yeah. Yeah. And so if, if I didn't know any better after having completed this project, I think the, the number one take home is that guys are a lot more uh, open and willing to share than many of us would believe, certainly more than, than, than I was uh, assuming. And and again, it appeared as though they were walking around ready to share their story. And then I just showed up and asked and they were like, OK, well, let's do it. Uh, and again, I would not have expected that at all going into the project. And were you the the only researcher? Did you have a couple of people on your team? No. So in terms of the data collection, uh, I was the only person doing the interviewing. Uh, in, in any qualitative research study, the interviewer becomes the instrument, so to speak. Uh, in terms of data collection, I collected all of the data, analyzed all of the data. When it came to writing it up, there were a couple of chapters where I reached out to some colleagues who had some particular uh, expertise in some of the areas to help me sort of analyze transcripts. But in terms of data collection, I did all of that myself. Yeah. I, and the reason why I asked the question is because I'm sure their energy shifted when you came through the door you know like oh wow the brother's gonna be t- asking me some questions about marriage so it's like that comfortability probably was there before you even open your mouth and ask the question because they knew that you were going to be coming from a place of authenticity and you would tell the true story of how they were feeling yeah absolutely one of the things that again to your point one of the things that i think helped guys open up was the idea that i mean again as you mentioned i was a black man talking to other black men about black love right so there was some uh some comfort there that was able and there was a report that we could establish early on I think one of the challenges was there were also situations and instances where because, again, we shared a sort of a common experience around being black men that uh, I had to be really, really intentional about asking follow up questions Mm. because it was oftentimes the case the guys would finish up by saying, well, you know, well, you know, like, well, no, I I have an idea, but I won't Mm. be able to get you to tell me what's happening with you rather than sort of me making some assumptions about what may or may not be going on with you based on whatever my experience has been. And it was also interesting because in one of the preliminary studies, uh, we picked up on the idea that guys were using a lot of pop culture references to sort of narrate their stories. Mm. Uh, and and one of them actually turned into a preliminary paper before the book came out, uh, a study that we call You Ain't No Denzel, right? Okay. And so and so what was happening there was and again, the study is about the ways in which the guys use pop culture references just to narrate their stories. And what they were doing was as they were explaining the situation and scenarios, if we came to a place where they were looking to make a certain sort of a point, they would make reference to someone like, say, for instance, a Denzel Washington, 
um, who is, I think, broadly or widely, maybe even universally recognized as the sort of epitome of black male sex symbol, right? So, and so anyway, so uh, the, the guys were making reference to people like Denzel when they were talking about how it is that they were trying to go about their business and how it is that they were looking to sort of establish themselves as, as figures in their communities and so on and so forth. And people talked about having a ride or die. And again, a ride or die, that's a reference to an old uh, locks hip hop song. And so anyway, so I think to your point, uh, the the sort of similarities in, in me as a black man and interviewing black men, I think that it has some positives and that we were able to establish a rapport much more easily than we would have been otherwise. Uh, it also made the conversations flow uh, naturally and organically because there was some at least some assumptions that we were on the same page when they were making reference to a ride or die or Denzel or whatever the case may be. But in other instances, it was a bit of a challenge because it required me to be uh, intentional and focused on making sure that I was getting explicit, um, intentional conversation and information from them and not making assumptions about what they meant when they said what they said. Well, yeah, and that's that's fascinating because to me, it's when they say that, that they felt like black men are in this box and they couldn't actually articulate their own personal feelings uh, whereby either they wouldn't feel understood or they were they couldn't go any deeper than the surface or the media level of what it is to be a black man in america so well again we talk about the way in which media shapes us right um and so uh so next sunday is a super bowl and 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 advertisers are going to pay millions of dollars for a 30 second spot they are spending that millions of dollars for nothing, right? They, they do that because they know when people are bombarded with images over and over and over again, it necessarily shapes the thought process. And so for some reason, right, you, you find yourself thirsty for a Coca-Cola next Sunday at seven o'clock and it's like, oh shoot, they were just hitting me with the, the sort of the frosty cup with the big ice cubes, clink, 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 right, and right, right. The bubbles fizzing and so on and so forth. And so similarly, when you're talking about black men in relationships, uh, there is a narrative about us, and it's been perpetuated by uh, the, the mainstream media that we are um, uh, hypersexual, that we may even be dangerous. Um, and you talk about the, the sort of history of that here in our country, uh, dating back to D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation, where uh, you had white men in blackface portraying us as uh, murderers and rapists and, and, again, very, very criminal and hypersexual and the way in which that continues all the way up until the contemporary, where we see images and portrayals and representations of black men as, as dangerous and criminal and hypersexual. And we absorb those messages just like the broader society. And mm. so one of the things that I think that led to the guys being so interested and so open and so willing to sit down and talk with me was they saw themselves as different than the narrative, uh, but didn't have a platform to be able to share. And so when I came along asking those types of questions, they were all too willing to say, here is my perspective on this. That's great. So let's kind of jump into a little bit of the study in, in the book. It stated that the partnership and commitment were very important to the men, which is kind of opposite of what we normally hear. And I know we've kind of touched upon that. Why was this such an important characteristic that the men were looking for? Because it was kind of the prominent thing that was featured. Yeah. So, again, the idea of partnership, companionship, uh, commitment, achieving a level of intimacy in their relationship that was separate and independent from sex and sexual intercourse. All of these things were, were things that the guys talked about as being really, really important to them. Um, they also talked about how it was that uh, 
these things were so important to them that it necessarily shaped how it was that they moved and how they moved in and out of their relationships. One of the reasons why I feel like that was important to share was because, again, as you mentioned, that's not something that we hear a lot about, right? If you were to play word association with people on the streets and you say, tell me what's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear black men in marriage, you don't hear things like commitment and partnership and companionship and intimacy, right? Um, but when these things came up over and over again, it's like, no, this is, this is what's going on in the hearts and minds of the actual people. And as you mentioned, it runs counter to the narrative that has been created and perpetuated so these are things that we need to get out into not only the, the academic literature, but also the, the public discourse, because, again, on the ground level, things are much, much different than, than they appear in the ways in which black men tend to be portrayed and represented in, again, both the academy as well as in the news media. Absolutely. And even that kind of the double down the commitment thing, there was a few people. Uh, and you know, in the study that mentioned that it was a kind of a lifelong endeavor. So it wasn't a, you know, a commitment until, you know, it just doesn't work and you get divorced. This is a lifelong thing. And it was interesting. Some of the people that even mentioned that were currently divorced. So there were some guys that were mentioned, the names Adam Thomas and Willard uh, mm -hmm. were guys that were mentioned in the book that were divorced. So I was very surprised at that, um, the fact that they were divorced, but they still considered marriage to be lifelong so i was really wondering if there was any questions as to why they were divorced but say for instance in the case of adam um adam was in in his early 40s uh, he talked about how it was that as he grew and evolved over time he grew in his appreciation for marriage and again as you mentioned although that he himself had been divorced uh he he recognized the uh, the importance of marriage he recognized how it served as a stabilizing factor, not only in his lives, but in the lives of other people in the community and in the, in the lives of the people in his circle of influence. And so, although again, he was no longer mayor, he still recognized it as something that was really, really important and something that many people should be striving for. In the cases of, of others, you mentioned uh, William and, and William's situation was, was interesting because he found himself divorced but at the time when i met him he was remarried so when i met him he had been divorced uh, much much early in his life and had become mm. married again and he talked about the idea that one of the reasons why he was interested in remarrying was because his socialization process had been that in order for you to be respected in the community one needed to be married he talked about how it was that marriage brought stability uh, sort of a stamp of approval to a man's life because it necessarily shaped and began to uh, sort of order a man's priorities, whether it be from a religious standpoint, whether it be from a familiar standpoint, whether it be from a raising kids standpoint. So mm. he talked quite vividly about how it was that not only uh, was he interested in remarrying, but he impressed upon all of his children the importance of marriage and how it was that his children could go about finding partners that they could sort of connect with and do it to his way of thinking, do it right the first time rather than having to have a second bite at the apple in terms of divorce and then remarriage as, as uh, what happened with him. Uh, and so again, so there were a number of guys who placed a lot of emphasis, a lot of priority on, on being married and being committed and being monogamous in their relationships. Now, of course, that wasn't the case for all of the men. Right, right. Uh, one of the other things that we wanted to do with the project is we wanted to get the perspectives of, of men across the sort of socioeconomic spectrum, across the age spectrum, as well as the 
various relationship statuses. So we had men who were married, men who had been divorced, men who had never married, men who were single as a result of a divorce, and men who were single as a result of never being married, men who were remarried and any number of configurations so as to be able to test out these various hypotheses related to the circumstances that the men found themselves in versus whatever their perspective and whatever their thought patterns or whatever their behaviors were in their relationship. So, yeah, and that's a great segue in regards kind of to the hyper-masculinity, since that is kind of the one of the topics that they feel that we kind of gravitate to. Were there any one in the, in the book or the study that did start out that way, but then change their mind or found a different way because of maybe their relationship they had had got into or they got married. And so they found that partner that they were looking for that kind of refuted that uh, lifestyle that they feel black men gravitate to. Um, And again, keep in mind that with the study, we followed the guys over a period of four years. So so as to be able to trace the ebbs and the flows and whatever their relationships were. But there were a couple of guys who would describe themselves as uh, ladies, men or players or whatever the case may be. Um, and oftentimes it was the case that when that happened, the guys were able to point to earlier relationship experiences. Mm. What we in the book describe as relationship traumas that they described as sort of sending them down a negative path. Right. So, for instance, there was one guy who talked about. Uh, being involved in a number of different uh, relationships and juggling multiple women at one time. And he sort of divulged to me that um, he had come to the realization that many of the women that he was involved with had a striking physical resemblance to a woman who abused him when he was a child. Oh, wow. Right. And so he was talking about the idea that uh, in his sort of subconscious, and it was only sort of after the fact that he come to realize that he would sort of acquire these women and, and mistreat them. And that was a way for him, again, at a subconscious level to get back at the woman who was a babysitter who, who physically abused him at an earlier point when he was uh, just a child. And there were other situations where uh, they weren't as dramatic and as um, uh, drastic as that, but there were other situations where guys had what they call just early negative relationship experiences that sort of knocked them off kilter and uh, contributed them to behaving in ways that could be characterized as um, less than faithful. But it was, again, it was in those moments of realization and sort of reflection that the guys had a chance to sort of step back and say, well, this is not who I am at my core. And so let me get back to who it is that I am and go about my business in a different way. Now, it was oftentimes the case that the catalyst for that reflection was when they met a woman who uh, they felt was worthy of their necessary sort of stopping and reflecting on whatever their situations were. So it was a situation where they came across or, or got connected with a woman that they really, really were interested in and wanted to have build a future with that they necessarily stopped, paused and said, well, this is what's going on or this. I want to make some changes. I want to do things differently now that I have a partner in place. Now, let's move this thing forward. Interesting. And was that just that individual? Did he have to um, go to therapy before he you know, was able to move forward? Or was the fact that the woman that he was with accepted him as he was and then he was able to kind of build himself up? Oh, I'm sorry. With that particular gentleman, no, there was no mention of having gone to therapy. He did mention um, finding religion, particularly uh, he, he referenced Minister Farrakhan a couple of times. And he talked about being a member of the Nation of Islam and how mm-hmm. that 
in many ways sort of digging into the, the, the Quran and, and becoming more immersed in in Islam was something that was beneficial and helpful to him in terms of stopping and reflecting. But he didn't miss anything specific as it relates to seeking out like clinical interventions or uh, a therapist or anything along oh, those okay. lines. Yeah. And that's a and that's a great segue, you know, kind of to my next question as well, because primarily we are, a, you know, a, a culture that that relies on religion or very religious uh, as part of our nature. And then, of course, marriage is one of the pinnacles of that. We're kind of society that's trending more towards more secular. You know, does that have an impact? Did that have an impact on our views of marriage? in the black community, especially especially our men, based on the study that you did? It did. So one of the sort of juxtapositions between some of the older guys and some of the younger guys had to do with this notion of religiosity. So there's a chapter in the book where we talk about relationship transition. About half of the guys over the course of the four years that we followed them, about half of them experienced some sort of a change or some sort of a shift in their relationship status. And then there were about the other half their relationship status was stable across the four or four years. And so for guys who had a stable relationship status across the four or four years, one of the questions was, to what do you attribute that to? Now, keeping in mind that for many of these guys, they were married and they stayed married across the entire study period. And for other guys, they were single and they stayed single across the full study period. But for the guys who were married and stayed married across the four or four years of the study, the number one thing that they pointed to in terms of a stabilizing factor was just the idea of having common core values, right? Mm -hmm. And for many of the people who cited common core values as the number one stabilizing factor, many of those people described or defined their common core values as religion. Mm -hmm. And so that was one of the ways that religion played a role um, in terms of helping to provide a stabilizing sort of a foundation. And, and in one example, a guy described his relationship with his wife as an isosceles triangle. And so, so not to turn this into a geometry lesson, but of course, those of you all out there who remember uh, from geometry, an isosceles triangle is one that has two sides that are exactly the same. He talked about he and his wife being those two equal sides of the isosceles triangle. And they talked about God being at the point or the tip of the triangle. And he said that as long as both he and his wife were independently working to get closer to God, they were necessarily also working to get closer to one another. Mm, and she, okay. So you sort of envision them going up the sides of the triangle, right? right, right. Um, and so anyway, so that was one of the ways that people talked about the role that religion played in their relationships. Uh, and so it tended to be that the, the older guys were a little bit more religious or religiously inclined in terms of uh, an adherence to organized religion than some of the younger guys. But there was some elements of, of religiosity in some of the younger guys as well, um, just not as much as there was with, with, the, with the older group. But again, to your point, though, I think more broadly speaking, um, there is sort of more of an influence from a secular standpoint than, than has been in days gone by. And separate and distinct from my research study or my book, I think that we owe a lot of that to uh, where it is that black people are post-civil rights. Before the civil rights movement, uh, it didn't matter what black people's education level was. It didn't matter what black people's income level was. We all lived in the same communities because we were necessarily stuck there because of redlining policies and housing discrimination. Mm -hmm. Right, right. And so... As a result of the civil rights movement, we now have a situation where, and again, I'm not pretending that discrimination is, is completely gone because we still have redlining issues 
in the United States today. Again, I live in Louisville, Kentucky, and Louisville has been identified as one of the most segregated cities in the entire country. So these issues are still at play, just not as drastic and as dramatic as they have been in the past. But we now live in a situation where, for the most part, um, people with the requisite level of education and income don't have to live in the same communities with people who are at much lower levels of income and education. And so one of the things we see is that we see some implications for the black church. And so in many communities across the country, you have people who may attend the black church, but they don't live in a community that is directly adjacent to the church. So they're coming in and out of the church, mm. but they don't live in the same community. Oh, okay. And I think that that has had some negative implications for uh, the church's ability to sort of hold on to and secure the participation of the next generation of parishioners, because there are some other influences at play that may have a, a stronger influence on those folks than the what used to be the case, which is sort of an intergenerational passing down of the the importance of religion. And so another yeah. so another way to say that is, as we have become more and more upwardly mobile we've begun to take on more characteristics of the broader society. And as a result of that, one of the things that used to bind our community, which was our sort of common experience and our religiosity, um, that stronghold just isn't there the way that it used to be in the past. Wow. Yeah. That could probably be another show in itself. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. 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 And, definitely. and I'm yeah. not, I'm not evaluating that as to whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing. I just, it depends on who you are, what you believe. Right. But well, yeah. And I'm sure there's, there's a, you know, there's also just an impact on the, I wouldn't say necessarily the power of the church or the connection with the community, because you know, that those, if they're adjacent around the communities are getting older. And so their reach it probably takes more to reach their parishioners because they are in different areas. Uh, they, it's not like they can walk you know, where they could just walk down the street. They might be, they might see them at the store, you know, and, and have a conversation or now you have to get on the phone or, you know, that kind of thing. So it, it you, you know, you lose some of that when you're not in the community. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So again, that's not a bad thing. Cause again, it's, it's a function of the, the gains and the strides that we've made post civil rights, but there are some unintended consequences. And right. one of which is, I, the community is just not as close knit as it used to be. Um, right. And one of the ways that that manifests itself is again, the church does not have as much influence as it did in days gone by. That's great. And so another thing that I also found interesting, you know, in the, in the book, in the study is that um, men perceived women favorably when they were viewed as easygoing. The first thing that kind of came to my mind was, well, was that a direct attack on black women? You know, and since we're talking about pop culture, the perception of how black women are viewed as um, aggressive, volatile, or, you know, they speak their mind. And so, and that's kind of seen as not favorable. So I didn't know if that was the case, but I would love to hear, hear what, uh, what that was in the study. Sure. So th there were, there were a couple of guys who in sort of talking about relationships that they had gotten out of or had dissolved, uh, they talked about the fact that one of the reasons was because uh, the women that they were involved with were sort of loud and overbearing. And I think in one case, the woman was described as ghetto. And he, the, the guy, when I asked him to sort of help me understand, he talked about how she was aggressive and, and loud and boisterous and so on and so forth. But outside of those two guys, uh, more often than not, the idea that men wanted uh, women who were easygoing in their temperament was less, to my way of thinking, at least in my interpretation of the data, mm -hmm. was less about uh, sort of feeding into or perpetuating negative stereotypes of black women. It was more about 
the idea that to them easygoing was tantamount to them having more things in common, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, and so by definition, if you have more things in common with a person, then you don't have as many areas where there's a flooding of heads. Okay. The, the other thing that was interesting was there was a bit of a sort of a, a juxtaposition or even a, a bit of an inconsistency in, in some of the guys' stories in that a lot of them talked about uh, desiring a woman who was had an easygoing temperament, but they also talked about having a preference for strong women. And so mm, we right. sort of got into what they meant by strong. Oftentimes it was a case that they said, well, I don't woman who I don't want a woman who's a pushover, which was interesting, given that Mim had just told me that they wanted a woman who was sort of easygoing. And so as we sort of explored that further, more often than not, uh, what guys were talking about was they, they wanted a woman who they saw as independent and a woman who could be a good mother and. Uh, a woman who could sort of hold down the household while uh, in the man's absence, if that were the case, or okay. someone that they did not have to sort of hold their hand and walk them through every single thing with people who had some individual agency and some capacity on their own. So in a lot of ways, they were defining that as strength, uh, but at the same time, wanting someone who they could get along with and not everything ended up being a fight simply for having a contrarian, so to speak, right? Uh, someone who wants to go left just because you're saying go right, just for the sake of it. It, it was also interesting that um, many men wanted, or they talked about the importance of this strength in terms of a characteristic of their mothers and their children. But again, easygoing and sort of deferential in terms of their wives or girlfriends. So uh, they, they, they wanted women who they could get along with. But again, they also admired the strength and the assertiveness of their own mothers and wanted those types of traits for their children. Right. Uh, so it was interesting in the way in which they looked at this notion of strength and how it manifests itself in their relationship. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I do find that when I do work with couples from time to time, the strength of the women can be uh, a detriment a little um, because of the fact that, okay, the men will tend to, I don't want to say crawl in the shell, but then they, they will not hurt a lot because the wife is challenging them on certain behaviors. <laughs> uh, if they're not doing, you know, and maybe because they're not sharing their their feelings or or they're just not doing what they said they were going to do and then they get challenged on that so that that's quite interesting uh that yeah. they would you know they would choose that but yet when they are called on the carpet then they have a hard time right right yeah and and it was a case that it was a, a harder time for men who were on the lower end of the social economic spectrum mm. uh, because oh, i see right because again, the challenge there is is oftentimes around uh, financial provision. It was also the case that, in addition to the social economic piece, that uh, the the assertiveness and the challenging became an issue uh, if and when it was about issues of fidelity. And so, when the guys were talking about strength, they 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 were talking about strength from the standpoint was does this woman have the capacity to support me in whatever it is that I'm doing, support the decisions that I'm making, if and when it is I need help and assistance in some areas? Does this woman have the capacity to provide me with the assistance that I need and play a sort of a complementary role? So it was more about that in terms of strength more than it was. Uh, I think to your point, guys said they didn't want to 
they didn't want to push over, but they weren't looking to necessarily be challenged either because <laughs> right. they, they were trying to sort of balance or reconcile the idea that they saw themselves as sort of evolved and progressive, but at the same time held on to some sort of historical and traditional views about the roles of men and women okay. and, and, and who should be in charge and who should make right. the decisions in uh, situations where there's not a natural and organic agreement. Um, so right, right. there were there were some some contradictions and some some juxtapositions there in terms of the way in which that played out. Yeah, and I could definitely see that, especially with the income disparities. Mm-hmm. Um, there are there's always that challenge about well, who you know who makes the decisions or and and I think as men and that's I think across the board, uh, no matter who it is, when we're not making uh, the money, we can tend to feel that okay, our, we don't have the same power. So. So overall, based on the book, they're kind of looking for the same things that women are looking for. And so in your view, where is the disconnect then between men and women in regards to healthy relationships and sustaining uh, relationships? So really good question. Um, And and I think it's important to reiterate that uh, generally speaking, at least the guys in my study, they weren't looking for things that were dramatically different than what you would imagine most women were looking for. They wanted a, a stable partner. They wanted an honest partner. They wanted a faithful partner. They wanted someone who would be supportive of them and someone that they themselves could support. So the question then becomes, as you mentioned, where if that's the case, everyone should be on the same page. I think that there are a couple of things happening there. One is um, knowing what you want and being able to manifest that are really, really different things, right? Right. The other thing that I think is important to mention, even as we sort of piggyback on the discussion that we were just having about how it is that guys who find themselves on a lower rung in terms of socioeconomic status find themselves challenged in terms of their sort of authority in their relationships. It's important for us to always take a step back, particularly if we're examining African-American or black relationships, because these things aren't happening in vacuums. Right. These these relationships don't exist. Um sort of without any context around them. These relationships are happening within uh, the the United States of America, which has not been a place that has been friendly or welcoming or receptive to stable black relationships, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so from our very uh, origins here in this country, the idea of a stable black relationship has always been something that threatened the broader or the larger society. Mm, okay. Right. And in in days gone by, there were literally rules and there were laws that kept us from forming unions, right? And although some of those right, laws, right. some of those policies have been overturned, the sentiment behind them has not. And so I think that anytime, and we mentioned this in the book, that anytime we're looking to examine or critique black male female relationships, we necessarily also need to critique the broader society that creates the circumstances that shape those relationships, right? Mm, okay. Yep. So so the idea of, of black men as uh, hyper masculine and overly sexualized, those are stereotypes that black men created. The the idea that black women are angry and themselves promiscuous and hypersexual, those aren't stereotypes that either black men or black women created. Those have been things that have been put in place by the broader society so as to create division within our relationship. Even as you think about the idea that uh, this sort of traditional model of man as provider and woman as sort of domestic, that was never necessarily the case for our people. It's always been the case that black women have been 
involved in paid labor outside of the home so as so as to be able to offset the burden of poverty and so the idea of a rigid division of, of labor on gender lines has never been a model that has worked for us and it's never been one that uh, we sort of wholly subscribe to take note of that that's a, that's that's interesting yeah and people need to know that yeah absolutely and so what happens as a result of that is the idea of man as provider woman as domestic that creates the scenario that do, that is also built the foundation for what a sort of traditional or stereotypical marital relationship looks like well if that model was never one that was created for us it would stand the reason that us trying to fit our relationships into that sort of a model won't necessarily work for us because again because black women have always been involved in paid labor outside of the home uh, black men have also been involved in more nurturing and caregiving work so in terms of the rigid division along uh, rigid division of, of labor along gender lines there's always been some blurring of those lines mm. so so it stands to reason that when you have black men looking to sort of fulfill or play a sort of a masculine role that approximates the way that a sole provider would it's going to lead to challenges it's going to lead to some bumping of heads why because again uh black women have always been equal if not significant if not equal contributors from a financial standpoint so again these things uh, play themselves out in our relationships and it's also the case that and we get into this in the book as well we sort of deconstruct some of these narratives and some of these models that have been superimposed on our people but weren't necessarily made for a built for our people in fact we see that from a public policy standpoint as well as from a macroeconomic standpoint that these are things that have always threatened our relationships because not only were they not built for us but we've been locked out of many opportunities to manifest them in ways that white people have always been able to because they were built specifically and exclusively for them yeah so um let's see because we had just got a comment but yeah and that's great because i know i think in marriage in general it sets us up to be that it is an individual thing, but we, we have to realize that uh, and rely on our communities and then our, our friends and family for that support. It's not just you, the two of you against the world as usually the way marriages are kind of set up today. Uh, we have to keep relying on those communities and our families for that support in order for us to, to survive and be sustainable. So yeah, that's Absolutely. great. Yeah. yeah. So, so, um, you know, a couple more things. So when, you know, when the marriages or the uh, people, the men in the book, uh, when their desires are, weren't being met, uh, how did they express to their partners um, that those things were not being met? Because I find that, you know, because it's really all about expectations and being able to um, voice though that the expectations aren't being met, you know, whereby, you know, women usually have no problems of voicing that, oh, you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing. So I wanted to hear that, you know, was that part of the book and how, how did they go about doing that? It's interesting because we, we have a discussion about expectations and uh, many of the guys struggle with articulating their expectations. Why, yeah, why is that? Um, so if I could speak more broadly than, than even than even the book, I think that um, I don't think men are socialized to do that. Right. I, yeah, I think yeah. that's, that's, I don't I don't think men are socialized to. Yeah, yeah it was kind of an alley-oop question. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I don't think men are socialized. I don't think men are socialized to talk about relationships, period. Mm. 
Um, and so certainly they aren't socialized to be able to talk about the really, really sort of granular and nuanced pieces of a relationship, things like having expectations. Um, I think we see that the fallout from having them, but we all have these expectations, right? Um, and so I think we see the fallout from having unmet expectations. So I think that one of the things, particularly for people like yourself who are involved in relationship coaching and people who may be out there listening, who may be either clinicians or practitioners working with people in relationships, I think this just sort of underscores the importance of us in our interventions to make sure that we are impressing upon all of the people that we work with the importance of being explicit and intentional about articulating their expectations. Because uh, it's yeah. been said that an unstated expectation is a premeditated resentment. And so I think it's important for us to encourage all of the people that we know and all of the people in our circles of influence to have their expectations stated. Um, one of the things that, again, we touched on earlier is that when people had stable relationships across the study period, one of the things that they pointed to was having common core values. And those are things that people had discussion and conversation about. And so it may be that one of the things that leads to instability is a lack of communication around what those expectations may be. Um, and so, again, I think it's important for us to have clear and consistent communication about what expectations are. I think it's important for us to have socialization around dating. That was something else that came up in the book. Guys were talking about not having good role models for healthy relationships. Right. Um, right. And for many of them, it's one of the things that led to some of their reluctance, at least early reluctance around marriage and relationship, because they didn't feel like they had what it took to be able to get into and sustain a healthy relationship because they had never seen it or hadn't seen much of it. Right. And they found, found themselves lamenting all of the, the sort of failed relationships that were happening around them and their friends and their families and their peer groups. And so, again, I think that in addition to discussing the conversation around expectations, I think it's important for us to have clear communication around common and core values. I think it's important for us to not only have uh, marriage models, but also, as you just mentioned, to sort of insulate ourselves from the negative influences of the, the broader society by getting closely connected with not only people in our family, but also people in our peer group and the extended family and people in the community who can sort of show us the ropes around what it looks like to, to be married and not just all of the good things, right? So so marriage is not rainbows and unicorns all of the time. There, right, right. There's ups and downs. And so uh, we need to be able to see how is it that we manage conflict? How is it that we resolve conflict? How is it that we prioritize cooperation as opposed to competition? How is it that we can remain committed to one another? How is it that we can keep our relationships uh, vibrant and lively and not get stale. And I think that we all necessarily need to work together in order to do that, because again, there's a lot of forces happening at the external level, uh, working that are willful and intentional about making sure that those things don't happen, because if they do happen, it poses a threat to the broader, uh, more dominant society. For fellas or guys that are out there um, listening and, you know, reach out to to people and be show show what the, your relationships are like i think if we we talk more about it we get more comfortable discussing that hey because we know relationships have struggles and just say you know i'm i'm in a relationship it's you know we have our good and bad days like everybody else normally and so i think if we if we talk about it more and but we don't sugarcoat everything, it will be in a much uh, better position. I think authentic is the, is the word 
that uh, that is appropriate there. The, the other thing I would like to mention, too, is in addition to encouraging guys to, to be more forthright and more willing to, to open up and share about what's happening in their relationships, I think it's equally important for the people that they're sharing with to create the types of environments around them where having them share will not cost them. So in other words, mm. there is there is right. a uh, there was a school of thought that was saying that a man is soft or he's weak if he's opening up about what's happening in his relationship. And so if, if guys feel like they're going to be sort of sanctioned or punished for being open and being vulnerable, then they'll clam up. Uh, and I think that's one of the mistakes that women sometimes make is that they say that they want to open. They want an emotionally expressive and available man. But then when he is open and available, then he gets sanctioned or he gets punished or he's sort of admonished for doing so. And then you can you can count on you can bank on that never, ever happening again. Right. So, again, yeah, so yeah absolutely. I think there's some responsibility on, on all sides there, not only for, for men to be open, honest, authentic and vulnerable, but there's also an equal responsibility for people around those men to create the types of environments around them where they can do that and feel safe uh, in doing so. Yeah. And, th- and that's why sometimes um, coaching relationship coaching is helpful because I, you know, there was actually a, a couple that I was working with uh, a while ago and he was struggling uh, with intimacy. And there were some things where he, he didn't feel he could trust her just yet. He couldn't share that. He, he was a little bit skittish because he thought he would get hurt again. And so these are the things that you have to be comfortable uh, sharing with, um, with your partner because she had not heard these things. And so I think it, when, she was a, when he was able to voice this out loud, it changed her perspective completely. Because, you know, her, her, her assumptions going in was that, oh, he's just, he just, just doesn't want me. He doesn't want to be with me. He doesn't find me attractive. And then those are the things when, you, you know, everyone comes with their own lens. And then, you know, it shapes the relationship because these things haven't been discussed. So imagine if they just went on along. Uh, with that and before and and something like that could tear a relationship apart yep yeah yep. so yeah and, so that's and so in that way they almost sort of two ships sort of passing one another talking past each other yep. without ever getting to the crux of whatever the real issue is right absolutely so uh this has been a great hour i'm sure we could talk a little more but you know like i always all my uh the brothers that come on I always want to know how you're doing, um, you know, outside of you know, your profession and what you're passionate about. You are also a man as well and may have some thoughts. So what are what's on your mind right now as an African-American man? Oh, wow. Um, that's a really good question. I think that um, th- there are a number of things on my mind. I think that the issues that we just discussed, these are things that as a, as a black man, I, I deal with and wrestle with myself. I think. What was interesting about going through this process of sitting down and talking with with men about their relationships, obviously, it forced me to reflect on mine. I'm, I'm married. I've been married for 12 years. It'll be 13 in, in May. I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we've been able to make it 12 years, but there's still a great deal of work to do. Um, and, and some of the same things that we were just talking about, about in terms of being open and being available and being responsive and receptive to communication and receiving communication. I think these are some of the same things that I'm, I'm working on. I live in the same United States as all of the guys who are out there listening where uh, the world tells us that we're less than and we shouldn't be together and 
that our relationships are, are fraught and, and, and destined to, to fail. And so I, I try to resist that and reject that as best I can. But um, I'll be lying if I told you that I'm immune from hearing the noise. I wrestle with some of the same struggles and pressures around financial provision and trying to balance that with being nurturing and being a caregiver to, to my to my children and also um again being available to my wife and so yeah i'm i'm uh although i did not set out with the study to sort of think through whatever my own issues were or are you you can't do this type of work and not be reflective right um and so absolutely yeah and so i think the the things on my mind are so just wrestling with some of the, the the broader forces that influence and impact me the broader forces that influence and impact my family and my relationship as well as my community and, and trying to do the best that I can to, to be balanced and centered around maintaining my priorities and, and getting on the same page and staying on the same page with the people who are important to me and, and being open and willing to work through it when those things don't always go as smooth as I, as I would like. Those are the things on my mind. Well, that's great. And that's a, that's a lot of um, lot on your mind. But based on our conversation today, I think you are you're doing great work, and I'm sure you'll your study that you did will will be immeasurable not only to you but uh, the people that are around you as well as your family as well. So, Dr. Perry, I just want to say thank you for being on today. Uh, this has really been uh, fascinating, and it's enhancement to the kind of the work I do and the men that will be on the show you know I'll definitely refer to this when if they're married and talking about you know what struggles are having because it's important work and hopefully the the platform um, will be used uh, and people that watch tonight it will help their relationship as well so thank you well again I appreciate you sharing your platform with me and if uh, people find it useful I, I would really really appreciate that and if folks want to Continue the conversation. They can find me at the, again, the University of Louisville in Louisville, Kentucky. What a truly impactful interview we had with Dr. Armand Perry. I hope as you listen, this changed your view on black men's views on marriage and commitment. As he stated, most black men want to be in a committed relationship. They want to find the one that has the same values and makes them better. If you're with a man that doesn't want those things, there is a reason. So just ask. It might change your relationship. Black Men Speak was written and produced by me, Keith Dent, and edited also by me, Keith Dent. As you know, after ending every show, we will end with a quote. You can't just give up on someone because the situation is not ideal. Great relationships aren't great because they have no problems. They're great because both people care enough about each other to find a way to make it work. As you know, we are trying something new. We are trying to nominate a Black Man for the Week. So if you are interested in nominating someone, please send me an email to info at keithdent.com. Their story might be featured on the next episode. And speaking of our episodes, you can find them on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Libsyn, and other places where you get your favorite. I hope you have a great day. This is Keith Dent, signing off. Peace.